Well, good evening. <coughs> no, no, no. No, no. What happened? Your team lose this afternoon? Come on, this is the evening the Lord has made. You shall rejoice in it whether you feel like it or not, right? So let's try that again. Good evening. See, that's a little better. You guys can do it. Tonight we're going to be talking about the creation's view of marriage. Now, I'm going to say to you a couple of things in introduction. I'm going to ask you to hang on tight, because I'm going to take you some places you've never been before. Hello? <laughs> Second thing, please do not judge anything I say in the middle. Please wait till I finish. Then you look back with me, and if I've taught truth, you accept it. If I have not, you reject it. Is that fair? Okay? But hang on tight. Don't judge what I say in the middle. Wait till the end. Fair enough? Come on, folks, you can talk with me. It's okay. I'm from out of town. Not out of state, but out of town, okay? Now, in talking about the creation of your marriage, I do want you to know, I, uh, I put this message together. It's a very near and dear message to me, but I made my first mission trip to Russia in July of 1994. Since then, I've made 56 mission trips to Russia. If you think 64 is cold here, you don't have a clue. You know, in Russia, when somebody says it's 10 degrees, we ask, is that plus or minus? Hello? Some of you apparently need to process that. Uh, normally, I'm in Russia in February in Siberia where it's minus 40. And that's southern Siberia. Northern Siberia, it's minus 70. So we aren't going to talk anymore about the weather. Now, in talking about the creation of your marriage, I put this together, this message basically together after my first mission trip to Russia when I saw what evolution had done to the family in Russia. I came back, put the material together, went back, and since I went in November of 94, I have probably given this message 300 times. And uh, it's just a very near and dear message for me. So I'm glad to be able to share it with you. And in talking about the creation's view of marriage, I'd like to know how many of you have ever done the vegetarian study of the Bible. You've never studied the vegetarian study of the Bible? Oh, that's where you study about all the lettuce-uds. I'll show you. Open up your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You notice in Genesis chapter 1, 26, and God said, let us. See, it's right there, isn't it? Hello? And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the narrative continues from there. Now, first of all, I would just like you to think about this for a moment. In English grammar, if you think about it, when you read those verses, there is something there that is not quite right. Because in the English language, it is incorrect to mix singulars and plurals in the same sentence. Is that correct? And yet when you read the text, there seems to be a mixing of singulars and plurals here. Is that correct? And, uh, well, notice, of course, let us. This is not the first reference to the triune God, but... It is a reference early in the Bible, certainly, but that God had a purpose of making creature in his own image. Is that correct? Now, let's talk about what does this word image actually mean. This word image in the Hebrew is the root word that we have for the word photograph. So if you were to read this in modern English, you would say that we are made in the photo well, photographic image of God. But what does that mean? Well, first of all, think with me for just a moment. Does God have a body? Excuse me? You, you can talk with me. It's, it's okay. Does God have a body? No, except in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, correct? But what does the Bible say? God is, come on, folks, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It is not a one-part process. It is a two-part process in spirit and in truth. Is that correct? Now, I'm a scientist. I can tell you we do not have the technology to take the photograph of a spirit, but I'm going to ask you to pretend tonight. Just pretend that we could, okay? So what does this word image really mean? 
Now, for example, if I were to go out in the parking lot during the daytime and I were to take a photograph of this building and I were to take it down and get it developed and put it on photographic paper, what would I have an image of on the paper? Uh, well, I'm glad somebody said the building because you are the church. This is just a building, correct? But I have an image of the building. Now, again, we cannot take the photograph of a spirit, but for a moment, pretend that we could. If I could take the photograph of a spirit, take it down, have it printed on photographic paper, what would I have an image of on the paper? Come on, folks. There's no trick questions. No, no, if I could, I would have an image of a spirit. The Bible does not teach that you and I are made in the physical image of God. The Bible teaches you and I are made in the spiritual image image of God. And there's a very important word that comes right after that. You notice it says likeness. That word likeness in Hebrew is called a qualifying word. What that means is it sets limits. So you are made in the spiritual image of God, but there are limits. This word is like putting a picture frame around a picture. Would you agree? The picture frame sets the limits of the picture, right? Everything inside the frame is picture, but everything outside is not. Is that correct? And what the Bible says is this. You have every attribute, every characteristic, every emotion it is humanly possible to have that God has, but that he has emotions, characteristics, attributes that you'll never have. You're not God. You're never going to become God, etc. But inasmuch as it is humanly possible, you have every attribute, emotion, characteristic that God has but there are limits. Are you with me so far? And please notice it also says that God had to make a man and a woman. Is that correct? Now, I don't know about this crowd, but I can tell you that there are many women in many Christian churches who have a real problem identifying with a male God. And I can understand that. I really can, because I have a problem uh, when I read the scriptures that says that I'm the bride of Christ. Hello? Some of you really need to process this stuff, folks. But, but, but the fact of the matter is, for God, who is spirit, to make himself manifest on the earth in a physical way by which we might be able to try to grasp something about his attributes, his emotions, and his characteristics, he had to make both a man and a woman to do it. Hello? Now, that's where we start. But let's think about this. This is where God brings the spirit of the man we call Adam and the woman we call Eve into existence. This is when he creates their spirits. But what about, what about the body? Where does that come into existence? Well, if you would just go down with me for a moment. If you'll go down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Now, we're going to be talking about some of these things later too, but there are people, there are people who incorrectly teach that there are two creation accounts, that there's the first creation account in Genesis chapter 1, actually goes through the first half of Genesis 2-4, and then they say there's a second creation account beginning there. This is not true. These are people who do not know how the Bible is written. God is a perfect author. Okay, now look, folks, that was a time for a big amen. So let's try that again. I said God is a perfect author. Amen. Now, how many of you here have ever read any technical article? I don't care whether it's in science, economics, uh, whatever field it might be. But you've read a technical article. And when you've read a technical article in a journal and so forth, what does it have? It has the title. Then it has the abstract. Is that correct? What you're going to prove and talk about. And then you have the article. Is that correct? Well, God writes the Bible in exactly the same way. There's a title. It's called The Bible. But the abstract is Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis 2, 4, first half. That's the abstract. And then God simply fills in the detail with the article following. It's not two creation accounts. It's one creation account. We get the skeleton, and then God fills in the details. Are you with me? And so Adam and Eve were created on day 6. However... Where does the body come into existence is recorded for us in Genesis 2-7. So let's go to Genesis 2-7. You notice in Genesis 2-7 it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. 
when it talks here about the formation of the man's body, I want you to think about how God did this. Now, God did not speak the body of Adam into existence. Is that correct? Now, he spoke the world into existence. He, he spoke the sun, the moon, the stars into existence. Is that correct? But notice that here it says that, that God took from the dust of the earth. Now, you have to understand that there are three verbs that are used in the first chapters of Genesis that are critical. You must understand what these verbs are. For instance, the verb in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is based in the verb bara. It means to create where there was nothing, that God can speak because of his sovereignty, and things simply come into existence. Two other verbs. One is esa, which means basically to assemble from previously existing material. It's the way we build a car. And the verb yatsar, which means to form the way a potter takes a lump of clay and forms a vase. Is that everybody with me here? But notice, in creating the body of the man, God gets very intimate with his creation. I mean, think about it for just a moment. When God spoke the heavens into existence, when God spoke the earth into existence, he just spoke and they were. Is that correct? But notice that when it comes to plants and animals and so forth, he gets a little closer to his creation. He says, let the earth bring forth. Is that right? It's a little closer, but it's not truly intimate. But when it comes to making the body of the man, what does God do? God reaches down into the ground that he has spoken into existence. And he hand selects one atom at a time, and he assembles the body of the man. Hello? Come on, folks, I don't know about you, but assembling a human body one atom at a time is about as intimate as you can get. Is that correct? And God assembles the man from the previously existing materials. But, of course, the body is not alive. It's everything necessary for the body uh, to exist, but it's not alive. Are you with me? And so what does God do next? Now, the Bible says that he, he breathes the breath of life. Now, the Hebrew word there is the word nefesh, nefesh. Uh, the word nefesh in Hebrew is actually translated three major ways into the English language. It means life, soul, and blood. Life, soul, blood. Doesn't the Bible say that the life is in the blood? Is that correct? And the word nefesh means life, soul, blood. Now, what happens? God made the body of the man, but the body is inanimate. Everything there, all the tissues, all the organs are there that are necessary for life, but the body is not animate. Is that correct? And then what does God do next? God breathes the nefesh into the body of the man. Now, it says it, he breathes that in through his nostrils. Now, I want to share something with you you will never find in the Bible, but it does come from Jewish sources. The ancient rabbis reasoned about this verse, and they said, how could such a, well, magnificent, awesome, unfathomable God breathe into the nostrils of a man the breath of life? And they reasoned about it, and they said, well, he must have used a funnel. But think with me, how did you make a funnel in the ancient times? In the ancient times, you took a ram's horn and you cut off the tip. And that's the way you made a funnel 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen Jewish worship, but how many of you have seen Jews uh, where we're blowing through a horn, either the shofar, which is the ram's horn, or the shofarat, which is the antelope horn? But how many of you have ever seen them blowing through a ram's horn or an antelope horn? Do you know why they do that? They say that this is the way in which they return the breath of God to him through the instrument by which it was received. Hello? And so, well, they say he used a funnel. But what does that do? That makes the body animate. Now, think with me for just a moment. I said the life is in the blood. The blood is the only tissue that actually moves around inside the body. Is that correct? Everything else sort of stays in place, right? And I think you'll agree, if the blood is not moving around on the inside, you are not moving around on the outside. Hello? Yeah. Now, also, what does God do? After he makes the body animate with nefesh, what does he do then? He takes the spirit of Adam prepared beforehand. 
places it inside his body, and Adam becomes a complete, whole human being with infinite, eternal value and worth. How are we doing so far? We're doing so far good? Now, think with me for just a moment. Uh, I'm going to ask you twice, as a matter of fact, tonight I'm going to ask you twice. I, I want you to participate. I really do. Um, I'm a teacher. You know, this is, uh, participation is what helps us to keep going. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, when you say amen to a pastor, it's kind of like saying sick him to a dog. Come on, folks, we need the encouragement, you see. Hello. So I'm going to ask you this question twice, but I want you to think for just a moment, if I were God. So I'm not saying you are, I just say, just think to yourself, if you were God, and you had just made the very first man in human history, who had just made his body, you'd made him alive, you've added his spirit, he's now a complete whole human being with infinite and eternal value and worth. Once you have done that, please tell me, what is the next thing you would create? I heard one lone voice. Is he the spokesman for all of you? What, what, what would you create first, uh, after Adam? I mean, now see, Jeff has a one-track mind. <laughs> but your answer is absolutely correct, of course, as we would look at it, as we would look at it. But of course, your answer is actually quite wrong. That's not the next thing God creates. Please take a look at the Bible. What is the next thing God does do? Notice that after God creates the body of the man, well, he takes him out to the garden. And God plants the garden. Now, why did God plant the garden? Well, think with me for just a moment. You know, there are people who uh, talk about the oldest joke in the world, but they're actually quite wrong. They, they talk about the oldest profession in the world, but they're wrong. The oldest profession in the world is actually agriculture. Hello? And, and why did God take Adam out to the garden? It was to show Adam what work was. Remember, Adam is the last thing to come along. He had never seen God work. He's the last thing to be created on day six. And not having ever seen work, he didn't know what work was. So God takes him to the garden. God plants the garden to show him what work is. And he says, okay, now, bud, you're the head farmer here. Hello? And you do the same thing I just did. Are you with me? Now, would you agree with me? This is a time when man is still in perfect fellowship with God. That, that man could walk and talk with God in the garden. That sin has not yet separated man from a holy God. Is that correct? And so, well, Adam has perfect fellowship with God. Is that correct? But please notice what it says. If you could take a look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him, a helper. Now, first of all, think with me for just a moment. Adam didn't know he was alone until God told him, hello. He had perfect fellowship with God. He, he didn't know he was alone just to start with. Is that correct? And uh, secondly, it's, God says, because of that, uh, that he's going to make a helpmeet, a helper. Um, does anybody here read the word slave? <clears throat> does anybody here read the word punching bag? No. Uh, it's really the words for helper. And I want to point out that helper is not a word of subservience. The word helper is a word of equality. Hello? Think with me for just a moment. Now, of course, you're sitting in these very nice padded chairs, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong, but how many of you can remember sitting in old oak pews? Hello? Yes, uh, that'll get you a hardening of the attitudes, won't it? So uh, you remember those old oak pews. Now, those things are heavy. Hello? Now, I'm a 74-year-old missionary, and I'm still in excellent physical condition. Thanks for the affirmation, folks. <laughs> now, if you were to unbolt one of those pews, I could still grab it in the middle. I could still move it a few inches at a time by myself. But I have absolutely no problem whatsoever lifting up one end. Are you with me? And, uh, sir, are you feeling healthy today? You are. Come on, 
right? You're feeling healthy today, right? Strong Christian man, right? There you go. So you can pick up the other end, is that right? Now, ladies and gentlemen, please tell me, if I had an old oak pew here, we unbolted it from the floor, I pick up one end, you picked up the other, and we moved it, let's say, to the other building next door, please tell me, which one of us was more important? Oh, neither one of us was more important, is that correct? Because we helped each other, is that correct? And the word helper is not a word of subservience. The word helper is a word of equality. And notice, God says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, you read that in English, of course, but let's think, what does the word really mean? This word alone. Now, first of all, remember that Adam didn't know he was alone until God told him. Is that correct? But what this word alone really means is this. You agreed with me that Adam could walk and talk with God. They had perfect fellowship. Is that correct? But what that word alone means is this. Even when a man has God in his life 100 total complete percent, Adam was able to walk and talk with God. Sin didn't separate them. Is that correct? But what it means is this, that even when a man has God in his life 100 total complete percent, a man is incomplete. That's what that word actually means. A man is incomplete. And God says it's not good for a man to be incomplete. Therefore, I'm going to make a equal who will complete him. Hello? Now, this is your second opportunity. Um, we're going to play this thing again where if I were God, okay? Now, if you were God and you had just said it's not good for man to be incomplete, if you had just said, I'm going to make a helper, an equal, who will complete him, please tell me, if you were God, what is the very next thing you would do? I tell you, Jeff's got a one-track mind there, doesn't he? <laughs> make a woman. Jeff, I want you to know, I like that answer. I love that answer. It's not the right answer, but I love it. <laughs> What is the very next thing God does do? Notice the very next thing God does is he says, okay, Adam, I want you to name the animals. Hello? <laughs> Come on, folks, I want you to name the animals. Now, you will agree with me, sin has not yet entered into the picture yet. Is that correct? Come on, folks, sin doesn't happen until chapter 3. Hello? So sin has not yet come into the picture. Is that right? And so Adam says, yes, sir. Right? And, uh, and he will name the animals. Now, I want you to think about something. How many of us were taught, or how many of us taught a Sunday school story about Adam naming the animals, and we completely missed what the whole thing was all about? Hello? Yeah, come on, folks. We completely missed what the story was about, because it's not a story about naming the animals. That's minor by comparison. What's the story about Adam naming the animals really all about. Well, first of all, I'd like you to think with me for a moment. Adam didn't have to go get the animals. God sent the animals to him, is that right? And we all sort of think about how God sent the animals to know, you know, to have them named uh, two by two, right? But what is this story really all about? Because we're told, of course, that as the animals passed by, Adam did give them the names, right? Now, this tells me two things. So number one, I'm going to ask you to sort of turn on a picture tube, a 3D picture tube in your brain, uh, and, and let's see if you can see in three dimensions what's really going on here, okay? Now, while those uh, tubes are warming up, um, we do know two things about Adam absolutely. Is that correct? Uh, number one, we know he was incredibly intelligent. Oh, come on, folks. He had a perfect human mind. I mean, if you think you're smart with a fallen mind, how smart would you be with a perfect mind? Hello? Yeah, Adam was a very intelligent person. He had a perfect human mind. And God pre-programmed that brain with a lot of information. And the second thing that we absolutely know about Adam is he had a complete whole language. Is that correct? 
Come on, folks. He was able to walk and talk with God. You know, God knows all the words. Aren't you glad? Hello? And so we know that Adam was incredibly intelligent and it had a complete whole language. After all, is there anywhere in the Bible where God hears the names of the animals? No, he just says, you've got enough words in your vocabulary, you name them. Is that correct? Now, have you kind of got those uh, TVs warmed up, ready to go here? Because I want you to see in three dimensions the story of Adam naming the animals. And so God starts bringing the animals to him to, to name, and he starts naming them. And I think after about the first oh, five pairs of animals goes by, I think Adam goes, wait a minute, time out here. Uh, God, could we have a little word over here on the sideline? In case you're not familiar, this is all football terminology, folks. So, uh, God, could we have a little conversation over here? Now, God, I've noticed everything comes in uh, right shoes and left shoes, and I've noticed that I'm a right shoe. Where's my left shoe? And God says, excuse me, boy, but I thought I said name the animals. And so uh, Adam says, well, yes, sir, you did. And he goes right back to naming the animals. Are, are you all kind of seeing this? Now, I think after about the first 25 pairs of animals goes by, I think Adam's starting to get a little frustrated around here. Apparently, you can't see this. Okay, I think after the first hundred pairs of animals goes by, I think Adam's starting to get a little frustrated around here. What do you think? What is the story really all about? It's not a story about naming the animals. What is the story really all about? What does it say at the end of the story? It says there was not found an equal for Adam. Is that correct? And what is the story all about? Think with me. All the other creatures were already perfectly paired, is that correct? Male and female of each kind as they went by. But Adam, Adam, at the end, we find out there's not a helper satisfactory for him, is that correct? And as a consequence of that, God is going to do something very intriguing in verse 21. But the whole story about Adam naming the animals is not a story about naming the animals. It's a story of confirmation. It's a story of confirmation. And God is saying to Adam, do not worry, my son. When I make her, she's going to be perfect. Because as you can see, I've already done it perfectly for everybody else. Hello? And that's what the story of naming the animals is all about. Don't worry, my son. When I do make her, she's going to be perfect. Because as you can see, I've already done it for everybody else perfectly. But as a consequence of there not being found a helper suitable for Adam, we have the incredibly famous verse 21. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as I go around the world teaching, I find it interesting, both Christians and non-Christians alike have all heard about Adam's rib, even if they think it's a Tracy and Hepburn movie. It, come on, some of you are old enough. But we have the incredibly famous verse 21. Now, verse 21 is absolutely intriguing to me. There's so much there. Um, but I must point out, in verse 21, we have the first four, well, we have the first four firsts in medical history. First four firsts in medical history. Take a look at it. Oh, by the way, do, do we have anybody here? Uh, do we have anybody that you or a relative is directly involved in the medical arts or sciences in any way? Do we have any medical technicians here? We have one. Okay, any nurses? Nurses? One. Okay. Uh, medical doctors? No, medical doctors. Okay. Um, drug dealers? <laughs> I'm glad to see there are no hands. Uh, it's very funny because in Russia, when I say that, I can't use that terminology. You see, a drug dealer in Russia is a pharmacist. When I tell that in Russia, I have to say any narcotics dealers. <laughs> well, if you don't quite see it, let's take a look at the first four medical firsts in human, in human history. If we take a look at verse 21. Now, in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Now, uh, here we have four medical firsts. First of all, you notice Adam was put into a deep sleep. Is that correct? Now, this is the first general anesthesia in human history. Now, number two, uh, well, this is the first surgical operation in human history, right? God is going to perform the first surgery. Is that right? Uh, number three, uh, this is the first and only male pregnancy in human history. And number four, Adam was delivered by a cesarean section, so this is the first C-section in human history. Is that correct? You know, some of you are looking at me a little strangely here. Well, I, I can actually understand why you would look at me a little strangely, I admit, but what I've just said is absolutely true. Um, and I want you to see what God actually has done here. Now, Adam had Eve inside. And this word rib is very, very important. Now, you read the English translation rib, and you tend to think of a single rib in a man's rib cage. Is that correct? But in Hebrew, that is not what the word means. In Hebrew, this word actually has 10 significant nuances or shades of meaning. And these 10 shades of meaning can be put into three categories. Now the first category has six definitions. And these six definitions mean something that is curved in general, but not the ribbon of man's ribcage. For instance, this word can refer to the round end of a cul-de-sac street. It can refer to the round end of a table it can refer to the round end of the grand piano here. Uh, it can refer to, uh, well, it can refer to the arch ceiling in a building, a cathedral, for instance. It can refer to the stars stretched from horizon to horizon above our heads at night. Six definitions, which mean curved in general, but not the rib in a man's ribcage. The second category has three significant meanings. These are very interesting because these three meanings of this word do not mean anything that is curved at all. As a matter of fact, these three meanings are straight and very, very strong. Did you hear that? Straight and very, very strong. The, the three best English words to understand what this word actually means in English would be a thick, heavy wooden timber, a thick, heavy wooden beam or a thick, heavy wooden plank, something that is straight but very, very strong. Are you with me? Well, obviously, the third category has only one significant meaning. It is the third category from which this word is actually translated rib. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is just, as fast as you can, turn those TVs back on again in your brain, okay? And in your minds, I want you to see any old, three-masted wooden sailing ship you've ever seen in your life. I don't care whether it was a real ship, a movie, a picture in a book, whatever. But in your mind, I want you to see any old three-masted wooden sailing ship you've ever seen in your life. And once you can see it in three dimensions in your mind, then I want you to cut the ship in half. Turn and look into the hull of the ship and tell me, what is the shape of the rib in the hull of an old wooden sailing ship. Because you see, the shape actually starts at the top, goes in and down, but then it goes back out again until it comes back in and meets the keel or spine of the ship. And so actually the rib in an old wooden sailing ship is not U-shaped or C-shaped, it's actually S-shaped. And this is where the word is translated rib in the English Bible. It actually comes from the ship's rib. So, six things curved, but not the ribbon of man's rib cage. Three things that are straight and very, very strong, and one that is actually S-shaped from the rib of a wooden sailing ship. So what does this word actually mean conceptually? Conceptually, this word means that which gives support. Did you hear that? That which gives support. 
what had God promised? I'm going to make an equal who will complete him. What was the material God used? That which gives support. And God took all the material out of the body of the man to make the body of the woman. Hello? It's absolutely true, folks. And, and of course, I'd like you to think about the difference about how the man came into existence and how the woman came into existence. Now, man was made from dirt. And many women still feel that way about it. <laughs> but woman, woman was made from living material. Now, wouldn't you agree, in the English language, when we talk about handling living material, we, we say that we're going to use TLC, tender loving care. Is that correct? Come on, folks. When you handle living material, you, you do it differently. I mean, for instance, you do it differently. You pick up a, a bucket of dirt very differently than you do a baby, right? <clears throat> oh, dear. Only 20 people. Well, when I'm in Russia, I sometimes speak in medical universities. I've spoken in five of their teaching medical universities in Russia. It's a very interesting experience. Um, but, but I explained to them, for instance, about transplant surgery because in government health care, there is no transplant surgery. Hello? Just, just thought you uh, listen to that. Um, they don't do transplant surgeries in Russia because they don't have a blood supply. They, they don't have a blood bank. There's no, no Red Cross or anything like that. There's no blood supply in Russia whatsoever. And so they can't do transplant surgeries. So in talking to the medical students, I explained to them, for instance, that when you're doing a heart transplant surgery, that when you take the heart out of one body cavity to put it in another body cavity, it's considered bad form if you drop it. Do we agree you handle living material differently than you do dirt? Very good. Now, woman was made from living material. Hello? There's no place in the Bible where God makes the body of the woman. Is that correct? He doesn't make her out of dust, does he? No, he, he takes that living material. Now, he doesn't have to make it alive. It's already alive. And what he does is he transforms it. He changes it into the shape of the woman. Is that correct? And then what does God do? Then he takes the spirit of Eve, well, that he had created beforehand, puts it inside her body, and she becomes a living human being with eternal, infinite value and worth. Figure amen, folks. It's, yeah. Now, think with me. What's going to happen next? Well, notice in the text, we're in chapter 2. Um, now, notice in verse 22, And the rib which God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now, when you read the text there, you've got to admit, God brought her to the man. It, it well, the big word is it sounds perfunctory, or it sounds abrupt, doesn't it? You know, that God brought her to the man and said, here, take her, she's yours, I'm out of here. Come on, folks, it kind of sounds like God put her in a basket, left her on the doorstep, rang the bell, and ran. <laughs> you know, here, take her, she's yours, I'm out of here, you know. But again, that's the problem of translation. When it says here in Hebrew that God brought her to the man, the word in Hebrew actually means to bring a special gift to a special person. To bring a special gift to a special person. Now, I would like to see if I can recreate tonight something in your life that I believe has happened at some time in your life. I don't care how young, how old you are. Please tell me, has there ever been a time in your life when you were able to buy, make, procure in any way whatsoever the perfect gift for somebody very special to you. you know, it could have been your parents, your grandparents, uh, your, uh, your wife, your husband, uh, a very, very close special friend. But, but you were able to buy, make, procure the perfect gift for them. You know what I'm talking about? That's only three of you, huh? But, but, but you do know what I'm talking about, right? Now, would you agree with me that in getting that gift, part of it, part of getting the gift is the anticipation 
of what it's going to be like when you give them that gift. Is that correct? Come on, you're, you, you've got this perfect gift, so part of it is the anticipation of what it's going to be like when you give them the gift, right? Now, I'm a full-time teaching missionary. I have been going around the world except for the COVID situation, but, but for instance, um, I've worked in Brazil 16 years, and, and uh, I was in Brazil a few years ago. I found the perfect gift for my wife, but it was six months ahead of time. And so what did I do? Well, remember, it was the perfect gift. It was unique. And I knew that I would never find it again anywhere else. And I knew that I would never find it cheaper. And let's face it, I'm Scottish. <laughs> Some of you apparently don't understand. You see, the Scots are known as very frugal people. You know, uh, We're so frugal, we're the ones that taught the Jews how to do it. <laughs> and so... So I knew that I would never find it again. It's a unique thing. I knew I would never find it cheaper anyplace else. I had to take the opportunity right then or I would lose the opportunity. You understand what I'm saying here? So I got the gift, but it was six months ahead of time. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe it was for Christmas. Maybe it was for Valentine's Day, uh, anniversary, uh, birthday, and so forth. But, but you were getting the gift for a very special reason and a very special person, right? But I bought this gift down in Brazil. It was six months ahead of time. So when I got home... I hid it in the closet, and I prayed to God my wife didn't find it. Uh, hi. <laughs> and, and so what happens? Well, when I bought the gift, I had this anticipation of what it was going to be like when I gave her the gift, but that's going to be six months from now, right? So I hide it in the closet when I got home. Now, three months later, I remember the gift is hiding in the closet, right? Now, we are halfway there. So what happens? The anticipation starts to build up. It starts to well up within me. Are we all familiar with that terminology? Anticipation wells up within you. Is that right? And so what happens next? Well, two weeks before her birthday, I start thinking about the fact that I've got to get a card, paper, wrapping, ribbons, and so forth. Um, maybe order flowers, balloons, or whatever, and so forth. And so the anticipation continues to well up within me. Is that right? And then, of course, what happens? One hour before I give her the gift, the anticipation, after all, I've been waiting six months, but the anticipation wells up within me until I get what's called an ache of anticipation right there. Hello? Now, ladies and gentlemen, God cannot put within you something he does not have or cannot do. Therefore, if I can get an ache of anticipation right here. God can get an ache of anticipation right here. Are you with me? And God had an ache of anticipation because he had the perfect gift to give to this guy, but he had to wait till the perfect time to give him the gift. Hello? And would you agree with me that if you're going to give somebody a perfect gift, I mean, you're going to find the nicest presentation box you can put it in. Is that correct? Oh, come on, folks. And, and, and you're going to get the nicest wrapping paper you can find, right? I mean, the stuff that's better than Hallmark. Uh, hello? And the nicest ribbons and bows you can find. Is that right? And, of course, you're going to get a card to go with it. Is that right? And, uh, well, the same thing is true of God. Uh, when he was preparing Eve to give to Adam, he used the nicest wrapping paper and bows. Apparently, some of you have not the imagination for this. Um, but, but then he put a, a card there. And on the card, he wrote, I love you. And then he signed his name because he wanted the credit. Come on, folks. You don't give away a perfect gift without getting the credit. Hello? Think about what does it say in Genesis chapter 2. It says... For God so loved man, he gave him woman. Does that sound a little familiar? Yes, in Genesis chapter 2, God so loved man, he gave him woman. Sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? And what's it say in John 3.16? God so loved us, men and women, that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for us. Is that correct? Interesting parallels? Because there's lots of interesting parallels in the Bible. I think you would agree. And, and I can tell, you know, folks, 
I, I have to tell you, I see things in parallels and in three dimensions a lot of other people do miss. So I'm just trying to get you to see these things in three dimensions, okay? Now, of course, would you agree with me, a gift is not a gift until you receive it. Is that correct? I mean, think with me for just a moment. God gives the gift of salvation to every human being, but they don't all possess it. Is that correct? Because a gift is not a gift until you accept it. And so only those that accept the gift of salvation actually possess it. Is that right? And I find it kind of interesting because Adam's acceptance of the gift is recorded for us in the Bible. Take a look at what it says. Notice verse 23. Now, I find verse 23 really interesting. Uh, I have 20 different English translations. I have foreign translations and so forth of the Bible. And I find it very interesting. Almost every tra- you know, English translation translates verse 23 in King James Shakespearean language. I, uh, I, I have to tell you, it's, it's almost universal. I think the reason is it's a very poetic, very beautiful text, of course. Um, but, but really, it's, it's more tradition than anything else. Um, but I, I want you to think about that. In, in verse 23, Adam is going to receive this perfect gift. But because it's in the King James Bible, you, you almost have to read it in 1611 Shakespearean English. Is that correct? And so upon receiving this perfect gift, uh, Adam says something <clears throat> like this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I'm glad you didn't applaud. Um, But let me ask you a question. The Bible is not Memorex, is that correct? Not every word said by every person in every situation recorded is necessarily in the Bible. Is that correct? Now, good, you know, God puts the text that he wants us to have there, certainly. But you must admit that not every word in every conversation is necessarily recorded. Is that correct? And the purpose of the Bible is not Memorex, right? Now, obviously, uh, Adam said this. It's recorded for us, Correct. But I don't think that's the first thing he said, actually, because I think the first thing he said was, Yes! Thank you, God! And then it... And then he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But for those of you that were struggling earlier with what I said, tell me, did Adam say this is a bone taken out of my body to make the body of the woman? No, he says it's all the bones and all the flesh taken out of my body. Is that correct? And Adam substantiates what I said earlier, that God took all the material to make the body of the woman from out of inside the body of the man. And Adam receives this perfect gift. Now, what is the last thing that God will do here for us? God is going to perform the first human marriage service. Is that correct? Now, we should always think of God being present at every marriage, of course, but here he's actually performing the service. Hello? does make it a little special, wouldn't you agree? Of course, there were no bridesmaids or best men, right? <laughs> Apparently, some of you have to think about that for a second. Um, but but let's, let's read what it says there. God, in performing the very first ma- marriage in verse 24, says, therefore. Now, I know there are people that always use those trite little things where there's a therefore. You always want to figure out what it's there for. I know that. But that's not my point tonight. My point tonight is any time you read three words, any time you read the words, therefore, for this cause, or because, Right? Anytime you read therefore, for this cause, or because, remember it's a logical construct. It is saying, because of what I have just done, because of what I have just taught, because of what I've just said, because of this, therefore, this follows. It's a logical construct, correct? And God says, because of what He has just done, because of what I've just reviewed with you, He says, A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. They shall be one flesh. Why is that? Why do they become one flesh? Well, it's really very simple. Remember I asked you, don't judge what I say in the middle. Wait until I get to the end and look back with me. Why do they become one flesh? Because that's the way it was in the beginning. Think back with me. God prepared two spirits, Adam and Eve. Then God made one body with enough material for two. And then he made that body alive with the nefesh. And then he took the spirit of Adam, put it inside the body. He becomes the first man in human history. But then what does God do? God then surgically separates that one body into two bodies. Now, he doesn't have to make this one alive because it's made from living material, correct? All he does is transform it into the shape of the woman. Then he takes the spirit of Eve prepared beforehand, puts it inside her body, and she becomes a complete whole human being. And then what happens? Through the marriage covenant, they are reunited back into one flesh. Why? Because they were one flesh to begin with, then surgically separated into two, but reunited through the marriage covenant back into one. Are you with me? But ladies and gentlemen, we have all had exactly the same experience ourselves. Think with me. There was a a time when, when man and woman were united with God. There was a time when Adam and Eve could walk in the garden with God. There was a time when sin had not yet surgically separated man and woman from God. Is that correct? But what happened? Sin has surgically separated man and woman from God. But God has provided another covenant. It's called the covenant of salvation by which we can be reunited with him once again. Now, I didn't explain the whole message on marriage. We've got more on it for you if you'd like. Pastor Bill is going to come up. He's going to talk with you in just a moment as well. But I want you to think about this. I hope in listening to this simple message on marriage that you have learned something about marriage, something new about marriage that you'd never seen before. But perhaps, perhaps if there's anyone here, you've also come to realize that you have been surgically separated from God by sin that you now know there is a way in which you can be reunited with him once again. And so we've all had that experience that we were separated from God, but God has provided the the covenant of salvation by which we can be reunited with him once again. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida, Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.